start us out, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll d- jump into this. So, uh, Father, thanks for giving us another night together. Thank you for your, um, for your goodness and, and grace. And we pray that as we dig into the doctrine of creation, that we will just have our hearts turned towards you and be grateful for you and all that you've done for us. And so we pray for your help tonight as we study this and ask for you uh, to speak where we need to be spoken to. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, come on in. Um, so this is uh, week four of Doctrine and Devotion. Glad you guys keep coming back. This is good. Um, we're talking about the doctrine of creation tonight. So where we've been uh, over the last few weeks, we started with the existence and nature of God and him as a trinity and what that means. And uh, la- a couple weeks ago, we did his, the attributes of God and uh, what he's like and what kind of attributes he possesses and what attributes of his we share. And then um, last week, we talked about the scriptures, what the Bible is, why we can trust it, um, why we should listen to the scriptures. So that's kind of where we've been. And, and we're just trekking through this um, about... In total, we'll do about 12 or so doctrines of the faith. So we had to kind of pick and choose a little bit because there's a lot more than 12 uh, that we could talk about, but kind of highlighted the, the big 12 that, uh, that we need to talk through. So today we're talking about creation. This seems to be the, the next natural thing to talk about as we're, we're looking at kind of building on, um, on the story of the Bible. So I just figured we'd unpack this and, and just work through it. And hopefully uh, we can get done a little earlier tonight than we normally do. So if the snow's coming down, we can all get home without any problems. Uh, but let's, So let's jump into it. Um, the doctrine of creation, here's a basic definition. And we're going to just basically unpack this definition tonight. Um, the, the definition is God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. So that's basically the foundation of the doctrine of creation. This is what we mean as Christians when we say that we believe in creation, that God created the entire universe out of nothing. So we're going to basically just unpack what the Bible has to say on this issue. And obviously, this is a it's a big issue. Uh, it really is. It's an issue that we can't cover in as deep as we probably would like to or whatever. So what I'm going to do is basically take us through um, the th- kind of three statements that as Bible-believing Christians, if that's where we're at, if we're Bible-believing Christians, these are the three things we have to agree with because these are the clear things that the Bible teaches. And then we're going to unpack a little bit of the variety of views on creation that do exist out there. And there's Bible-believing Christians that disagree on how things came about. That's okay. That's actually good, I think. Um, But we're going to talk about the things that are non-negotiable first and then unpack the things that are more negotiable or debatable. And um, hopefully you'll land on a view that uh, you think lines up the best with the biblical evidence. Um, So, Three statements we need to unpack. We'll start with the first one here. Um, This is in that definition. God created the universe out of nothing. God created the universe out of nothing. So what does that mean? Well, we, we 
need to see this, that the Bible clearly requires us to believe that God created the universe from nothing. The, the Latin phrase that theologians use to talk about this is the phrase ex nihilo, which means ex is Latin for out of or from. Um, if you think of the exodus, they're leaving, getting out of Egypt. That's where that word comes from. Uh, ex nihilo, nihilo is the Latin word for nothing. So just literally, we, we say that God created the world out of nothing or from nothing. So we believe, as we talked about a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago, um, God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. Hard for us to wrap our heads around that because we are so tied to time and space as created beings. But God is outside of that. And he is the only one who has always existed, but he created the world from nothing. So let's just do a quick Bible review of this. It's, this is pretty clear, I think, all throughout the Bible, but we'll look at the, the kind of the highlights. Genesis 1.1, that's a natural place to start. First verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as everything had a beginning, it was God who created the heavens and the earth. So everything that exists uh, was created by God. So God was there. He was the only one who was there. And everything that came into existence, he created. We see uh, Psalm 33, 6 on here. Let's, let me just turn to that one quickly for you. Um, it says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So there he's talking about the creation of the heavens. Um, and, and I think the spiritual world is in view here because all their host refers to typically to the angels. Um, so by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So not only did God make the physical world, he also made the spiritual world. He created the angels as well and anything that we uh, are unable to see as we'll see in another passage, but uh, John 1, 3 uh, is a good verse here as well. This is about Jesus specifically, but we know that Jesus was active in creation as the member of the Trinity. And it says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So that's a I mean, there's some emphasis here, right? That the things that were made were made because he made them. That's basically what John is saying about Jesus. So all things, that's all-encompassing, everything that exists was made through Jesus. And without Jesus, nothing that's been made was made without him, right? So that's pretty clear. Uh, similarly, Colossians 1, verse 16. This one... Um, yeah, I like this one too. He says, for by him, again, we're talking about Christ here in this context. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were uh, created through him and for him. 
Uh, so there we're seeing Jesus made all things. Everything that was made was made for him. And yes, I know this is, oops, redundant, but um, one more, just to round it out, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 4.11. Uh, here, God is, God is getting the praise um, around the throne. And here's what they say. In verse 11, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created so we're seeing that god creates the world out of nothing as i said this includes the spiritual universe that which is unseen as well as those things that are seen as colossians 1 16 tells us um, nehemiah uh, 9 6 also tells us this uh, here it says, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with their host, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So there, Nehemiah is affirming that God created not only the physical world and all that's in it, uh, here on earth and in the sea and all this. He also created the heaven of heavens, the, the aspect of the spiritual universe that we can't see, and the angels also worship him. So God creates the world out of nothing. We see that clearly in Genesis 1, that whole chapter. I wish we could just sit here and read it. We just need to kind of go a little quicker than that. So you can read it on your own, but it walks through the story of God's creation of the world and what he does and how he speaks it into existence. But then you get into the last part of this, um, this chapter, and we see that God also makes mankind. He makes men and women. And we actually see an interesting shift in the story as God speaks everything into existence he actually doesn't speak mankind or men and women into existence. He forms them. It's an interesting thing because it almost switches from a God is just saying, okay, you're going to exist, you're going to exist, and all these things come into existence. But when you get to human beings, there's a direct creation. There's a direct creation of Adam and Eve. In uh, Genesis 1, and 27, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let, us have let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So there we see God speaking to, he says, let us, and this I think is pointing us to the Trinity, the, this three-in-one God that we have. And that here he says, we're going to make man distinct from the rest of the created world. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, and then we see how he does this. So basically, as you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's just so you know, like Genesis 1 is kind of the, the big picture, like pulled way up in the sky, looking at the whole picture. And then chapter 2 basically brings us down on the ground, 
showing us how God made man and woman specifically. So chapter two overlaps with the last day of chapter one, the last day of creation, but it gives us a specific angle at it. And so here you see in verse five through seven, uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Uh, And so there we're seeing God do something distinct with Adam. He actually doesn't just say, let there be man, like he did with all the other things. He forms Adam from the ground, from the dust. And actually the word Adam is, is the Hebrew word. I believe it has a range of meaning, but it it does mean dirt, essentially. Like, that's not an insult, but it's just because he was formed out of, out of the ground. And he made, but God made Adam distinctly and directly. And then he makes Eve distinctly and directly in verse 21 and 22. It says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed, it up, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man... He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, And so here you see Eve created specifically by God as well. So God creates the world out of nothing. He takes man and woman and he makes them distinct. Now we're going to talk about why that's significant in a little bit down the road here as we we work through this this lesson. Uh, We'll talk about the the implications of this direct creation, but I just wanted to touch on it here and then we'll talk a little more about it. But let's just talk through a few implications of this statement that God creates the world out of nothing. Uh, First of all, and again, what we're talking about is the big picture of as Bible-believing Christians, what must we believe? We're not getting into the controversial stuff yet. We will get into that. But this is the stuff that every Christian has to come to terms with if we believe the Bible. If we believe the Bible, it rules out, obviously, an atheistic evolutionary view of the world. Atheistic evolutionary view. So obviously, to be an atheist means you don't believe God exists. That doesn't change the fact that he does, but it's what you believe. If you're an atheist, you don't believe God exists. And so as Christians, we can't be atheists, and that's very obvious. I'm stating the obvious here, right? Like, that's, that's kind of clear. Um, so when we say that God created the universe out of nothing, we are making a position here to say there's a God, and that which exists came about because of him, because he did it. Now, there is uh, a viewpoint um, among some Christians that would be called theistic evolution. So theistic evolution is a theory that basically tries to get the scriptures to line up with what our modern understanding of science is. Um, and so some people have suggested, and, I'm, and I don't hold to this view at all, but some people would suggest that God exists and that he used the evolutionary process 
to get the world into existence. That basically God started it and then kind of oversaw it, but he just kind of let nature do its thing. There's a lot of problems with that view, honestly. Um, but there's a lot of problems with evolutionary theory to get altogether. But um, the, the, what we've just seen, that God created the universe out of nothing and that God specifically creates Adam and Eve, does a real blow, I think, to the theistic evolutionary view. Because the, the theistic evolutionary view requires um, mankind to, to come into existence through the process of trial and error, through the process of natural selection, through the process of leaping from one species to another. Um, and there's just a lot of problems when you read the Bible with believing God did that, did it that way. Um, Genesis 2.7, we see the special act of creation that God the, it uses the Hebrew word um, for made Adam a living creature. Nefesh kaya is the uh, Hebrew phrase. I probably butchered that pronunciation. But that he breathed life specifically into Adam and made him a living creature. And what evolution requires is that we just come about through the process. Um, so then, there's a, then there's, that raises all kinds of issues about was there a historical Adam? If you're a theistic evolutionist, was Adam a real person? Because most theistic evolutionists have to say no because there, there were just a whole bunch of people that had eventually evolved and so there was no specific historical Adam. And the problem with that view is that Jesus believes in a historical Adam and you can't call Jesus wrong on that. I don't think if, if I'm as a Christian who believes the Bible, uh, the apostle Paul believed in Adam as a historical figure. And so, so one view that I guess has some possibility, though I disagree with it, is if you are a, and one of my friends who, who uh, I had in college did hold this view and he was a believer and he loved Jesus, but I think he was wrong about this. Um, but he believed that God used the evolutionary process to get the, the created world going, and then Adam and Eve were specifically, distinctly created outside of that process. Okay, whatever. But uh, that's, that's just one of those things. Um, I, th this belief that God creates the universe out of nothing um, really is foundational, and it's, and it's an issue that I think does deal a pretty tough blow to the evolutionary belief system, regardless of whether we plug God into that or, or not, um, I think there's a lot of problems. And that's, again, we, we could talk a lot about that. Um, Evolution, they believe that it just came from the Big Bang, right? It just yeah. happened, that's it. Right. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit too. But um, here's another issue with the, the evolutionary view according to Scripture. There's a frequent repetition of the phrase, according to their kinds. So if you read Genesis 1, over and over again, it says, according to their kind, according to their kinds. So what this indicates is that there is a divinely imposed limitation on what can result from reproduction. And that's a problem if you have an evolutionary view. It just is. Because you have to believe that one species becomes, over time, another species. And, and they would say, you know, you can, I've read, I've read actually a lot of books by evolutionists and people who are atheists, and their view is basically just give it enough time and it'll happen. 
And that's kind of their, their theory is more time. If you have problems with it, just add more time. It'll, it'll work. And uh, it's interesting, but not very convincing. The Bible seems to think, it seems to say here in this, in this, in this phrase, according to it, to their kinds or its kind, that there's like things that there's limitations to the reproduction of, of species. So the persuasive power, I think, for the theory of evolution is not based on clear evidence, uh, but really on it's the only viable option to believing in God. Like you, if you don't want to believe in God, if that's your starting point, then you have to believe in evolution. And I think that that's the primary um, pull towards evolution uh, and that theory of the existence, because it does... It does ring a little bit like, really? Uh, especially when you see the complexity of the world. Here's the thing. Um, Darwin, when he was proposing his um, origin of the species, the understanding of science was very limited compared to what we now know. Like uh, Darwin's view of the human cell, a cell, uh, was extremely simplistic. His understanding of the human eye was extremely simplistic. Uh, and, and we know that it's anything but simple. These things are extraordinarily complex. Uh, Michael Behe, who is, a, who is a scientist, a molecular biologist, wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box uh, a number of years ago. I think it's still in print. Um, I don't know, but I have a copy of it. It's, it's a little bit too sciencey for me. I, I'm not, like, there's a lot, of, a lot of science in it. Uh, obviously, but what he's what he talks about is actually how what we now know uh, through, you know, the last hundred years or or more uh, since Darwin did all of his stuff is just the the massive complexity of the human molecule and molecules in the human body and all the things there and it's just his his basic point. I don't think he's a Christian, uh, but his point is essentially. How could this happen by accident? Like, it's just too complicated. And so as a scientist, he's looking at it and going, I don't know, this, this seems like it's a little hard to, to swallow when you actually dig into what's there. So you really do have to come at it from a worldview that says God does not exist, so now let's explain how everything happened. And, and that's, the, that's the real pull to evolution. Now, with that said, I want to acknowledge this. Um, when we say evolution, I don't mean we need to be idiots and, and say that there's no evolution ever in the entire world. We know that there is a thing called microevolution. By microevolution, what, what we mean is that within a species, things are changed and adapted over time. We, we know that. We know we can take one dog and breed it with a different dog and make a new breed. We know, we know this. Like, that's different. Uh, we know that butterflies can change their pattern over generations depending on the environment in which they're living and how the environment changes. There's no problem and there's no inconsistency with the scriptures about how the world and the things within the world can evolve, in a sense, or change or develop, however, whatever word you want to use there. I know sometimes Christians get scared off by the word evolution, but there is, a, there is a sense in which evolution happens within a species. That's fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing that the scriptures contradict about that. 
what, what the Bible clearly seems to teach, though, is that there's no such thing as macroevolution. So macro is big, micro is small. Um, what we don't observe in the world, and, and we have never seen it happen, and we never will, I don't think, where we've seen a species become a different species. It just hasn't happened. Uh, and, and it's kind of weird that it doesn't happen if it's supposed to be how it happened. Like, why isn't it still happening? And people who suggest this would basically say, well, it's time, it's time. And of course, we're not going to live long enough to see the, the long term. I mean, that's fine, whatever. But um, so microevolution, fine. Macroevolution, I, I don't think there's a biblical leg to stand on, but there we go. That's, that's the first point. Christians have to agree, if we're going to be believers in Jesus we got to believe that God created the world out of nothing. Here's the second thing. Um, <clears throat> creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. Creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. So here's what we mean by this. Um, most... I think actually all but Christian and Jewish uh, religions believe that um, their God is either directly tied to the created world or is completely removed from the created world. And what Christianity teaches, and Judaism as well, teaches that the God of the Bible is both transcendent meaning that he's above his creation, he's distinct from it, he's different from his created world, but he's also imminent, meaning he is in it, he remains a part of it, he's involved in his created world. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he, in, in Colossians 1.16, where all things were made um, by him and for him, and then it says that, um, I think it's verse 17, actually. He goes on to say, um, let's see. Yeah, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So God creates the world, but he also holds the world together. He's actively involved in it. So unlike any deity from other religions, God of the Bible is transcendent and imminent. He is both above and distinct, but also creation is dependent on him to continue holding together. So here's a picture to kind of help you imagine this. And I, I just took screenshots or whatever of the textbook, Grudem's textbook. Um, here you see God in the circle above creation. It's, he's separate from creation. He's not in the same circle. He's a different circle. He's a different being from creation. Creation is in the lower circle, and I'm describing this not because, you know, you can't see, but because there's people who listen to this. And, uh, and then you have the arrow uh, going down towards creation. So God is engaged, imminent in his creation. So that description was for the podcasters, I guess. Um, but that's, this is basically what we're talking about. God is distinct, and yet creation is always dependent on him. That is not the worldview of, of most other faiths or belief systems. You have a worldview called materialism. This is uh, your, 
your standard atheistic worldview, a worldview in which there is no God. And so this is what they are. It's a circle, and it says the universe. There's no, there is no God in that picture. All that exists is what we can see. That's a materialist. That's, uh, that's somebody who would say, we, we're just, we're here because of a big accident, just kind of happened, and over time, here we are. Um, and so that's one perspective that would disagree with the biblical one. Here's another one. This is pantheism. Pantheism, pan means all, um, and theism means God. So the view of pantheism is that all is God, and God's in everything, and God, everything is God. Um, and so you have one circle in this picture, and it's just God, the whole, the whole thing. There's no distinct creation from God. The whole thing is God. And uh, this, this basically would fall under most of your, um, I believe Buddhism would, would hold this view. Uh, I believe uh, most of your Native American spirituality, uh, at least traditionally, would hold this view. Um, famously, Disney holds this view. Um, and <laughs> I just pulled that off the internet today. That was great. Uh, so there's Pocahontas, and she is talking about that rock having a life and that tree having a spirit. And that's one of my favorite songs of all the Disney movies, actually. I, I love it. But, um, and I grew up watching that, and I'm not a pantheist. Look at that. Look at that, guys. Can, you can watch Disney and not be a pantheist. Uh, but, but that's the idea, is um, that everything has a spirit. Everything is kind of in this big hoop, you know, this circle of life. Um, Lion King, we can rip on that too, but I didn't have any pictures of Lion King. So, uh, but yeah, there you go. So that's pantheism in a nutshell. You've got dualism. This is another uh, non-biblical worldview. Dualism is a little, I'm a little unclear on the point of dualism, but basically you got God separate from the universe, but they're both moving in different directions. They're both independently moving forward, but not together. They're just kind of, kind of a separate thing. And it's very similar uh, to deism. And deism is the last one we'll look at here. You have God in the top circle, creation in the lower circle, but no arrow in between. There's no, so deism would basically be the view. This is your standard. Um, I don't know that there's a, 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 an exact religion that would fall under deism. Probably there is. Uh, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. But this would be your basic view that, yeah, there's a God, but I don't know what he's like. Don't really, don't. Re so this would maybe be an agnostic kind of view. Um, you're willing to admit, yeah, there's a God, but he probably doesn't have anything to do with us. That is deism in a nutshell, is that there's a God, he creates the world, and then he just kind of leaves it alone. He just, he's off doing his thing. We're doing our thing. There's no real interaction. So those are the main problems, or the main ways that in which that would disagree with the biblical worldview, which is that creation is distinct from God. God is not in creation. He's not a part of creation, but creation is dependent on him to continue uh, and to be held together. So, okay, to recap, the first biblical statement that we need to believe is that God created the world, the universe, out of nothing. Second one is that creation is distinct from God and always dependent on God. And here's the third one. God created the universe to show his glory. God created the universe 
to show his glory. This is the, this is the main idea that God creates the world to be very good. We see that at the very end of Genesis chapter one, the, the last verse and says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Um, so God creates the world to be very good and it's meant to display his glory. The people in the world, the things in the world are meant to point us to how glorious God is. Every Christian needs to believe this. This is a part of the clear teaching of scripture. You have Isaiah 30, uh, 43, 7. Here, here uh, Isaiah is just quoting the Lord directly. And here's what God says to his people. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I also formed and made. So God is speaking to his people and saying, I've called you by, by name and I've created you for my glory and I have formed you and made you. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the world in which we can observe the, the sky above, the, the night sky fill the stars, the beauty of that, when you're actually outside of a city and you can see the stars, um, it, it screams out God's glory. And that's how, what it's meant to do. The verse we read in Revelation 4.11 says, says very similarly, but I, lo- I love this too. It says, um, I'm going to try to go off memory, but so I'll turn to it so I don't butcher it. Um, it says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Okay, so there's worship, right, of God. Worthy are you to receive, receive glory. Why? It says, because or for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. God created all things. Therefore, he is worthy of all glory and honor and power. So God created the world and everything in it, including us, for his own glory. When God created the world, he declared it very good. Um, but we know that that's not the end of the story. We know that there, sin enters the world in the, next, in the next chapter, in chapter 3, and that's where things start to go bad. Now, we're not going to deal with this issue tonight that's next week so we'll talk about sin and its implications and its ramifications and how it affects the world and all of that it's a it's a much bigger issue than we can address tonight so we'll leave it till next week Um, but the created world as it was intended to be not as it currently is it's not it still does declare the glory of god but it's it's marred it's not perfectly (laughs) declaring the glory of god as it was meant to because of sin and and largely because of our own hearts to receive that or to experience that. But that's another subject for another day. So uh, we'll, we'll take a second here. Are there any questions? Probably too many questions. I don't know, but do you guys have anything you want to kind of bounce around here? I know we just rattled off a ton. I'm sorry I interrupted you. You're fine. No, you're fine. 
thing of the Big Bang Theory, that creation was from the Big Bang Theory. What's that mean? That That's the theory that there was um, gases and materials in the universe that somehow exploded inexplicably. We don't, they don't have an answer for how this happened, but that these, the gases exploded, caused this giant explosion, this big bang. And, uh, and that from that, the material world came into existence. The planets and the stars and all, all of this came about. So that's the, that's the very, very quick definition of that. But, um, yeah, it's just an interesting thing that, you know, we, we can always go back and forth. They can go at us and go, well, where did God come from? And we'll say, nowhere, because he's just always been. And then we come at them and go, well, where'd the gas come from? Don't know. Doesn't matter. You know, it's like we can just keep going around in circles with all this, and it's kind of silly. So it takes faith to believe whatever you're going to believe, honestly, at the end of the day. Any, anything else? When they said that they created, he created us in his image, yeah. I, that still confuses me. We're going to get right to that. That's the next slide, Beth. <laughs> Look at that. Right there. It's like I read your mind. There you go. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, yes. It's not a question. Yeah, that's all right. It's, a, it's, it's more of a comment. When God said, let there be light, mm-hmm. I love that because um, there, of, of light, Human beings can only see Hmm. 0.0035% of all available light. There are insects that can see more of of light than we can. Hmm. That's how butterflies know where where to go to find the nectar in a flower because they can see UV light wow. we can't see. Wow. Hummingbirds too. And I think that that's, I think that's just so amazing. That is. There is no space that doesn't have light. Mm. I think of death's door. Mm-hmm. We see darkness. But where Jesus Christ is, there is no darkness. Mm. On the other side of that door is glory. Hmm. You know, um, there is no place that doesn't have light. We just can't see it. That's awesome. That's really great. Thanks for sharing that. I don't know that. She's the butterfly lady. She knows. (laughs) She's amazing in that. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Appreciate you sharing that. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's go on to the image of God then. I know I, there's probably a million more questions, um, but we can chat afterwards if you'd like. Um, so what does it mean to be created in the image of God? That's, I, I, so, so I'll just say this. This should be, honestly, its own subject all, on it, all itself. Um, when you study systematic theology, when you read the, the big textbook like, like this one here, He's got a whole chapter separately devoted to this issue, not, not tapped in or, or connected to the creation thing. But again, I had to kind of pick and choose. And so I, I am wanting to touch on it. I can't get into it as much as I think it deserves. But, but let's look fundamentally at what this means. Um, 
foundationally, it means that mankind, that is man and woman, which are, who are both equally created in God's image, uh, are like God and represent God. Um, so every creature in Genesis 1 is made after its own kind, except for man, mankind. We are made distinctly and differently as God's image. God pauses after he creates these animals in the, in the story. He stops and he says, okay, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so there is a distinction between humanity and the rest of the created world. Uh, we have a different position within God's creation. We have a different role to play within God's creation. And, and I think that we need to recognize some of those things. And, and I'm going to, hopefully towards the end as we try to apply this, I'm going to try to tie some of those applications in. But um, here's, the, here's the thing that the Bible clearly says. Um, God created us male and female, and that men and women are equally image bearers of God. And that what that means to be an image bearer of God is to represent God and like like a mirror kind of images yourself it's not it's not you it's just an image of you right god is the the true fullness of all these things but we represent aspects of him and we we are like him in certain ways which we unpacked a, a couple weeks ago at the communicable attributes of god the things that god is that we share even though we share them imperfectly are i think the the main ways in which we image God, that we represent him and we show one another and the world itself something of what God is like. And, um, and so I want to, I didn't want to spend a ton of time on this tonight. I know it's, it's a big thing. There's a lot of implications in it. Um, maybe, maybe we'll find a, a way to tie all this in um, down the road a little bit, but but I think it's important to just stop and notice that the Bible teaches us something that I think doesn't, um, it doesn't get a lot of, uh, it's not popular today in our current culture, uh, and that is that we're male and female. So I don't know how many genders we're up to now. Uh, I really don't. I, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm really not. I really, that's not my thing. You guys know my heart in this. But I do think we need to be honest about what's going on and uh, look at the Bible and go, yeah, God, God knows what he's doing and there's male and female. And, and if there's confusion in that, if there's people that are struggling with gender identity, like my heart breaks for them. I, I would love to talk about that with somebody in that situation, but I know it's a complicated and big issue. We're not going to get into all of that. That's not, we don't have the time for that. But I do want to just acknowledge as believers, we need to believe what God's word says. And God doesn't give us any other categories. We've got male and female, and we're equally and vitally both, importantly, image bearers of God. That there are aspects of masculinity that, that images God. There's aspects of femininity that, that images God. And uh, both are equally um, meant to represent him. So, so that's, um, that's the very... Very, very quick explanation of this. But basically, if you look at the communicable attributes of what we share with God, that those are the ways that we display 
his image in, in a nutshell. And again, much bigger issue than than we can get into. I'm going to keep flying through just for the sake of time here. Um, so creation views. Let's spend a little time talking about creation views. But before we get there, let me remind you about this picture. Um, I shared this in the first week. This is something that we uh, need to understand, I think, as we study theology, that there are a variety of rings of theology, concentric circles. And in the center of that bullseye image, if you're thinking about a dartboard, you got the bullseye there. That's the absolutes. These are the things that are foundationally what makes us Christians. And if you disagree with the absolutes, you're, you're not a believer. You're just not a Christian. And you believe something else. You have a different worldview. Okay. Um, but as Christians, there are absolutes. There are things that we must believe. And then there are the second ring out would be convictions. These are the things that we would hold pretty tightly and believe pretty strongly from the scriptures. But Christians can differ on convictions. Um, that's the primary reason why we have different denominations. Because there are, not the only reason, there's some pettiness to it too at times. But, um, but there is, uh, in some cases, some legitimate things that we have to say, okay, if, we have, if we're at an impasse here about the convictions, we've got to figure something out and maybe go our own way a little bit on this. But we can still acknowledge, hey, if we're on, on the same team with the absolutes, we're, we're on the same team. We just may have some different convictions. And then there's the third ring, which are our opinions. Uh, opinions matter even less, right? They, don't, they should never divide a church. I don't think. I think that Christians should actually have differences of opinion and be able to reconcile that with one another and say, listen, your, your view is valid. My view is valid. Let's just agree to disagree on the opinions. Um, and then you've got the questions, which is the last ring out. And of course, that's, I think everybody would agree that the things that are kind of questionable, we don't really have good answers for them. Those things we're obviously not going to divide over in any way. Um, so where we're at, basically what we've tried to unpack in the first half of this is the absolutes. Like those, and maybe a little bit into the convictions. But those are the things like those three statements that God created the world out of nothing, that he is distinct from his creation, but creation is dependent on him, and that he made all this for his glory. Those are pretty much every Christian is going to agree with those things. That's not where we have differences. What we get to talk about now are the differences. And this is going to be the fun stuff because this is like, there's some interesting views out there. And so we're going to unpack what some of them are. Um, there are a variety of views on the issue of creation. And I will do my best to fairly uh, explain the views, even if I don't hold the views. And so I may not perfectly do it. If there's anyone who would, who would hold to a view that I misrepresent, you can correct me. Absolutely. Um, but there are views of creation that Christians can disagree on and debate over without dividing. Um, so as I get into this, I just want to be clear, like I'm not promoting all of these views as if, it, if, as if I think it's the right one. I'm giving you the options. I'm just putting them out there. So don't go, oh, Tom believes that weird thing. And that, you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I'm, that's not the, I'm not advocating uh, for anything in particular here. I will give you my, my take 
towards the end for whatever it's worth. It, it's not worth much, but you know you can do with it what you want. Um, but here's the fundamental disagreement between the different views of creation. The fundamental disagreement between the views boils down to how old is the earth? That's really how it's divided up. Um, there, there are Christians of goodwill, of Bible-believing, convicted uh, people who trust Jesus, love Jesus, who actually disagree on how old the earth is. And understanding how old the earth is will inf- impact how you think of the earth and how you think of the creation story. But let's just get a couple things clear. One thing primarily. The Bible doesn't tell us how old the earth is. It doesn't. It does not. You can believe all you want that it does, <laughs> but it doesn't. Okay. Um, answers in Genesis is a great ministry. They do good things. They're a little bit too hard-nosed on this issue. I, I just, I'm a little frustrated at times with them uh, because they basically take a stance that we can pretty much get down to the, to the number. And it's like, yeah. I don't, I don't think we can, but okay, fine. Again, we're not dividing. We're not like, we got the concentric circles. We're, we're, we're friends. Okay. That's fine. But we can disagree. Uh, I don't think the Bible gives us the age of the earth. Um, the Bible gives us genealogies, which is where kind of these creation people try to figure out how old the earth is. And they kind of do the math. They work backwards they go, okay, this guy lived for this many years. Keep going backwards till you get to the beginning. And then you're like, boom, there's the number. The problem with that is that the genealogies in the Bible are not necessarily exhaustive. Um, they're selective. Jesus' genealogy, I believe it's Matthew's, um, skips quite a few other people that other genealogies in the Old Testament include. It's not because he's wrong. It's because that's not his point. He's trying to make a, a point with his genealogies and he's getting to Jesus. And so we, we have to be careful not to be overly like, okay, these are the, this is every person who's ever lived. And the, the, we got to be careful with that. I don't think we can definitively say how old the earth is. So that has really been what's led to the debate on how old it is. So you've got two views. Primarily, you've got young earth creationists who believe the, the earth is roughly 10,000 to 20,000 years old. Some would say even 6,000 um, or 6,000 something. But I'm just rounding, rounding up. Okay, 10,000 to 20,000 years old would be where a young earth creationist would land on the age of the earth. Okay. The old earth creationists, again, Bible-believing Christians here, would say that the earth is roughly several million to four and a half billion years old, like anywhere in that span, right? <laughs> so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a massive span, obviously. Depending on who you're talking to, depending on what old earth creationist you're reading, some think the earth might be, you know, four million. Some think, obviously, the 4.5 billion is the kind of the modern science belief of how old the earth is. I don't know a lot of, uh, I don't know of a lot of creation, uh, creationists in general who would think that the earth is that old. Uh, but I'm just putting it out there as, as a possibility, that there are people who think several million years, four and a half um, billion. Okay. So where, where the discrepancy? <laughs> Where's the, where, why are there some Christians who are like, yeah, it's like 6,000 years old, 
And some, they're like, actually, it's like four and a half billion years old. Like, where is the disconnect? Here's the disconnect. What is the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> I love it. Um, what does the Bible mean by day? And you might say it means day. Um, <laughs> sure. But, but it's, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. It, it really is. Um, linguistically speaking, um, when you look at the Hebrew word yom, yom is Hebrew for day. It has a range of meanings, whether you like it or not, it has a range of meanings. It can mean a day, as in a 24-hour span of time. It can also mean just an indefinite span of time. It really does have a range of meanings. And I, I want to show you a few examples of how it can mean something broader than 24 hours. Because I think that the word day, obviously, we, there's a lot of places we can go that where it does mean 24 hours or just a day, like what we would think of as a day. But there are places where it means more broadly than that. Here's just three examples. Um, Job 20, 28. Um, here's, again, just kind of doing kind of a broad, broad, quick look here. Um, it says, The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. The day of God's wrath is not in this context speaking about a specific day, a specific 24-hour period of time. It's the same word yom. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for day, but it has, a, it has a broader meaning, meaning that when God's wrath is coming upon you, this period of time of God's wrath, then uh, the possessions of his house will be carried away. That's what that means. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 1. Similarly here, it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, he, again, we, we get this intuitively. We understand this. We just The clear reading of this is not there's a single 24-hour day where you're going to have trouble. It's meaning a broader period of time in which you're in trouble, and God's going to help you in that season of your life. And then one more that's even more clear because of how the translators chose to translate this particular verse. Um, Proverbs 25, 13 says, Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest. Time, it's, it's important to know, is the same word as day. It's young. Now the translators of this verse chose time of harvest because contextually that's what makes sense, right? Like harvest is not a single day, it's a season. And so that's just a few examples. We could go, we could rattle off a bunch more uh, where the word day, the word yom can be translated or understood as time, could be understood as like a season, could be understood as, or could be understood as a single day. So that's where the, that's where the, the rub is here. It's like how... Do we understand day in the scriptures? All right, or in, the, in that passage of Genesis. So I'm going to spend some time first unpacking the old earth theories, and then a few of them, and then we'll unpack a couple of young earth theories because there just aren't as many young earth theories out there. So 
But there's some interesting old earth ones. We're going to look at three of them. Um, again, I'm not promoting any of these as if it's right. I'm just telling you what's out there. First one is the day-age view. The day-age view. This is the view that each day in Genesis refers to a long span of time or ages. So the day-age view would say day one of Genesis on all the way down to age uh, to, to six um, is not a single day as we think of day, but taking that word yom and understanding its contextual use, what, what the Bible is saying is that there was a long span of time for day one, and it took a long span of time for day two, and on and on and on. Um, and their, their main argument for this would be um, day seven, where God rested. That they would say that God is still at rest, that God did not just rest for 24 hours, but is continually, even to this day, resting from his work of creation. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that that's what they would say, is that if God's span of time for day seven has, is ongoing and continual, then it makes sense for the other days to also be at least theoretically long spans of time. Now, there's some problems with this, of course. Um, one of the problems is um, how could plants survive for millions of years without the sun? Because plants are made in day uh, three, and the sun and the moon are created on day four. Now, to respond to that, a day-age person would say, well, God created light on the first day, and light sustained everything until the sun and the moon were created. You take that for what it's worth. Okay, that's just, that's the one view. All right, and again, not doing it justice. I'm not unpacking all the nuance. Uh, Grudem does a great job if you have his text, or I'm sure you can just Google day-age view on Amazon or whatever, Google on Amazon. Search on Amazon for the day-age view, and I'm sure you'll find lots of books on it. All right, second one, uh, the literary framework view. So this view argues that the six days of, of Genesis 1 are not intended to be chronological sequence of events, but a way to teach us about God's creative activity. So their view would be that the earth could be very old, and I think theoretically you could be a literary framework person and believe in a young earth too, um, because their view isn't really so much on the technical, like scientific side of creation. It's more on what is the point of Genesis 1? Is the point of Genesis 1 to give us some kind of manual for how God created the world and in what order he created the world? Or is it meant to teach us something theologically about God's creative activity? And they would say, yeah, it's more about theology than it is about science. And so the, what they would say is, and this is true, you can actually, as I was studying this, I almost got convinced of this, actually. I was working through it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's compelling. I think I might believe that now. You know, I just believe whichever one comes into my view next, you know. But, um, but literary framework would basically say that as you read the book, the, the story, the narrative in, in Genesis, days one, two, and three are the days of forming. So he creates Basically, you know, he says there's light, and then, so that's kind of the general forming of, of light and everything. Then you have the water, and then you have the sky, 
and then you have the earth. And they're, they're just kind of empty, but they're, they're formed in, that, in those days. And then days four, five, and six are the days of filling, where he fills the sky with the sun and the moon. He fills the world with birds and animals and people. And so you look at these days and you're going, okay, so that's kind of the, frame, so the framework part of this. Literary framework is to say, here, here's the framework. Day one, two, and three. It's not about the chronological timeline of events. It's about these days represent God's days of forming the world. And then the last three days, he's filling the world. It's interesting. Um, so this view would say that Genesis 1 is not meant to teach us science, but theology of creation. Um, the main problem with this view, the main argument against it, I think, would be that the passage in Genesis and other passages that talk about that passage do seem to imply a chronological sequence of events. I mean, I think there's, we got Exodus 28 through 11, which we're going to look at in a little bit here. Um, so we won't turn to it now, but that, that's a passage where we kind of see this as like chronological and it's, it is what it is, right? And like, you also have a problem in the text itself in Genesis 1 where there's a repeated frame of there was morning and there was evening, first day. Morning, evening, second day. Morn so you have this continuous like repetition of morning and evening. So it sounds like those are days to me, but there we go. So, so literary framework, I think if you're going to be an old earth, this is my, my two cents. If you're going to be an old earth creationist, that's probably the strongest of the views. Because I'm going to show you one next that's just like, it's almost just funny. I, I love it. It's hilarious, and I laugh every time I read it. <laughs> and it's called the gap theory. All right, so this one, I love this one. Uh, it's so hysterical. Uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't poke fun at people. They, some people really do believe this. But some evangelicals have proposed that there's a gap of millions of years in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So I don't know where they came up with that exactly, but... Um, the theory suggests that God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They would say, period, done, he did that. And then there was some sort of rebellion. Probably they would say it was connected to Satan's downfall from heaven that required God to destroy the earth and start over. And that's what verse 2 picks up. So they would say... Um, that the reason Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the earth was without form and void implies that there was an earth before day one, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it just says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in all fairness, a gap age theorist would say, well, why is there water before God created water? Why is there earth before God created earth? Like maybe it existed in Genesis 1-1 where God did create those things, but then it got messed up somehow and they don't have any answers for what that actually means. But And there's no biblical evidence outside of 
their, their theory here, that's the problem. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that says this. And so we can't really build a theology on it, but it's an interesting idea. And they're going, so that explains, they would say, why the ancient fossil records are the way they are. Why Because those are all the first earth fossils. <laughs> and there were millions of years in between the two, the two earths. And so all that stuff is, the dinosaurs were on the first earth or something. I, again, I don't know why they, they believe that exactly. It's not a super compelling view. It takes a pretty massive leap to get there, in my view. But again, love them. God love them. You know, it's just, it's good. And uh, they, they, these people would, would genuinely believe in the three things that we unpacked. Um, they're, they're believers. They're, they're trusting Christ. They believe in all the things that we would say. But they've got a unique perspective on how, how the earth can be old and also, um, you know, jive with the scriptures there. So anyways, that's their attempt. Let's talk about some young earth views, though. Only a couple here. Um, the, the main one is this. This is really the predominant one. Uh, that creation um, came about with the appearance of age. That creation came about with the appearance of age. This is what's called mature creationism. So that God made the world with the appearance of age. So even though the earth is very young... 6,000, 10,000, 20,000, whatever years old, it looks very old because God made the world to look old. Um, the, the obvious argument for this that most young earth creationists would say is Adam and Eve, as far as the Bible, as far as we can tell from the Bible, were formed as fully grown adult people, right? That, that God formed them and then pretty quickly introduced them to be married and got, you know, they started filling the earth. And so the, the idea would be, well, if God created Adam and Eve with the appearance of age, even though they were a day old, they looked like grown people, why wouldn't the trees and the rocks and everything else look like it's been around a long time? Okay, that's fine. That's, that's their view. Um, one interesting argument I heard against this view from an old earth creationist is actually has to do with the speed of light. And um, his argument was, I'm trying to remember which book this, this was in. I can't, now I can't remember, but I'll, I'll think of it, I'm sure. But he basically said that we, we know roughly how many light years away the nearest stars that are visible to the naked eye um, are from us. And so because we can see those stars and they're somewhere around like 4 million light years away from us, then he would say that the earth has to be at least 4 million years old because the light, we know how fast light travels. We know this. We know that these things are that far away. Again, I'm not saying it's a compelling argument. I'm just saying that's an argument where he would say, well, so if, if God created the world with the appearance of age, did he start the light like this far down the road and then now it's getting to us now? And even though it was, I don't, I don't know, but that's an argument. Um, so... Creation with the appearance of age, mature creationism. Another argument for young earth is that the flood geology, um, flood geology uh, basically changed the appearance of the earth as the flood in Genesis 6 happened. Um, that disruption kind of messed with all of the geology of the earth. And so that is what has actually given it the appearance of age. Rather than God just making everything look mature, um, 
you know, the, the flood did that. The argument there would be, well, Genesis um, tells us that when God makes man, um, in, in chapter 2, it says there was no bush of the field yet in the land, no small plant in the field that had sprung up. So their, their argument would be, did God actually make it with age? Because here, here's a verse that says there were no plants that were sprung up yet. They're all, they were all still growing. And God hadn't given water yet to, to grow those plants. And again, this is so nitpicky, right? It's just kind of silly. But that, I'm just telling you, this is what theologians do. They just they nitpick about this stuff. Um, so anyways, those are the kind of the main, main views. Um, for what it's worth... My view is the literal 24-hour day, young earth with, with maturity kind of view. I, I think today, at least, it's what makes most sense to me. Um, given the simple reading of Scripture, like, it just seems, it seems the clearest to me. And, and I feel like, I just kind of wonder, like, why do we need to do jumping jacks and jump through hoops to make it say something that it doesn't say? Like, let's just believe what it says. That's my take for whatever it's worth. Again, we're not going to divide over this. This is something that we can, we can have good, goodwill about and just disagree on. But my view is that, yeah, it's young earth. Don't know how old. Don't care how old. It's, just, it's young, um, relatively speaking. It's not billions of years old, at least. And, um, and yeah, and, and God made it, and he made it in 24-hour days. And my main argument for that is that even though Yom can be more broadly understood than just 24-hour days, when the creation account is mentioned in the Bible elsewhere, it's connected to a literal seven-day week. And this is where we're going to go to Exodus 20. This, I think, is the clearest passage where Moses, well, actually, it's really God speaking to Moses um, in this context. This is where the Ten Commandments were given. And so God is speaking these words. So I think God would know. He's the authority on the issue. He was there when it happened. So, um, but this is what, it's just interesting here. And I, I don't know if it's the most compelling argument or not, but I think it's pretty compelling. Uh, verse eight through 11, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So there's the commandment to keep a Sabbath day, to keep a day of rest. Uh, and here's what he says. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So six actual days, not, you know, not six periods of time, six days you labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11, four, or here's why. Here's why you're going to do this. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the, the logic for the Sabbath day, which is connected to a seven-day week, an actual seven-day week, is that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, so you rest on the seventh day. There you go. That's my best. That's my best pitch for young Earth, six literal twenty-four hour day creationism. Um, but let's remember this. This is important. Genesis one and two. I agree with the literary framework people on this. They're right about this. 
It's not intended to be a scientific text. It's not. It is not meant to be scientific. The, the concept of science was not even a thought in the culture in which it was written. And I believe that God speaks to all cultures at all times in, in his word. And so it's not meant to be some you know, gotcha thing with all the scientific proofs. It is meant to draw our hearts to the creator, though. That's what it's meant to do. It's theology, not science. And I think we, we need to recognize that because there are, you know, they're, they're people, again, of goodwill. They mean well. They're trying to defend the Bible. And I, I, I appreciate it. But sometimes we can get so fixated on the, the, the scientific and trying to make all the rationales and trying to make people believe it. And, and we just got to go, you know what, that's not really its purpose, its purpose is to point us to the creator. And it, when, you, when you actually look at this passage, Genesis 1 set apart Israel from the entire world around them, which were all polytheists who believed that this God made this part of the world and that God made that part of the world and they're all fighting with each other all the time. And, and what, the, what the biblical God shows us is he's a unified, peaceful creator God who made everything, the earth and heaven, the sea and all that's in them, that he did it, that he did it. And he did it with, um, with purpose. But I don't, I don't think that this text is meant to be some crazy scientific explanation of things. So I, I do, I guess I hover between the, uh, the uh, literary framework as far as understanding the, the text. And I think it's a fascinating idea of seeing that framework of filling or forming and filling. I really think that's amazing. Uh, somebody's like, well, you're smart. You figured that out. That's kind of cool. I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think that that has to be connected to the age of the earth. And, and that's where I'm kind of at. Like, I think it can be both, um, that we can actually agree that it's 24-hour days and that the intention of Genesis 1 is to point us to theology and not to science. I, I think we can say both pretty, pretty clearly. But... That's my take for whatever it's worth, and it's probably not worth much. So let's, um, let's go on from here. Um, I want to spend a little time just applying this, and I, and I did actually intend for this to be a little shorter. We've been going for two hours every, every week, and I was like, we're burning people out here. So I'm, trying to, I'm glad I'm actually shooting for a, a shorter time here. Um, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. We're almost done. Um, <laughs> But I want to I apply this. I, I want to bring us to the devotion side of this. Because that's, that's really what this is meant for. It's not meant to give you a bunch of head knowledge. It's meant to draw your hearts to Jesus. So how, does applica- how, do, how do we apply the doctrine of creation to our lives? Well, here's, here's kind of one big point I want to bring us to. is Creation points us to God's goodness, glory, and wisdom. We've already touched on the, the glory of God, right? That the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We've seen that we were formed by him, made by him for his glory. Um, but creation points us to more than just his glory, although that's clearly what it points us to in part. It also points us to his goodness and to his wisdom, and I really want to just take us to Psalm 104. I know I have Psalm 19 on there too, but um, Psalm 104 is becoming actually one of my favorite psalms. 
Um, it, it's, it's a creation psalm. It's a psalm that extols the Lord, praises the Lord for his uh, creation. And um, it's about 35 verses. I, I just think we can read it and let it soak in here. It, here's what it says. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. I think that's interesting because not that this is a science text, but we know now that the universe is always expanding. And, and this says it. God is stretching out the heavens like a tent. This is, it's not meant to be, you know, proof of a scientific fact, but it's an interesting, interesting thing. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, the clouds. So there's creation. He rides on the wings of the wind. There's creation. He makes his messengers wind, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that the earth might not again cover the earth. You made springs gush forth in the valley. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renewed the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in all his works who look on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing praise to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's just a beautiful psalm, and it takes us through the, the created world, and here's what it highlights. It highlights the glory of God, right? That you are very great is how it starts. But then it also talks about the goodness of God, how God provides for these animals the water they need to drink and the food they need to eat. And for us, right? Wine to gladden the hearts of men, spread to strengthen his heart, that the earth may bring f- food for us, This is God's goodness to us in the world he made. He's created it to be so beautiful in pointing us to his kindness, to his creation. And this is true whether you're a Christian or not. That's what's so great about it. (laughs) God loves his people regardless of whether they're saved or not yet saved or will never be saved. He has common grace for, for the people he created. And it also displays his wisdom. That's what verse 24 says. In wisdom you made them all. God's wit, like we can walk through the forest and go, I could never have invented this in my wildest dreams, but God made it. He knows what he's doing. Right? That's, that's something that creation gets us to. And I love this psalm for that reason. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said about this psalm that, um, he said, we, I read this psalm many times after having a hike in the mountains and I, in, in a very Spurgeon-y way, he says, I tell my friends as we're, after we're done with our walk, now we're going to read Psalm 104. That's a very Spurgeon thing to do. Um, you know, take a walk in the woods and then read Psalm 104. That's, that's what it's meant for. It's meant to draw our hearts into thankfulness to God for who he is. Um, here's a ver- here's a, uh, not a verse, a, a quote from a guy named Ray Ortland, who's a pastor. Um, I love this. I, he didn't write this in a book. He said it, I think, on a podcast a while back, but I, it just stuck, stuck out to me. He said this, getting out into what God has made as opposed to being oppressed oppressed with a complete environment of what we have made is healing. And I think that's so, that's so helpful. There's so much wisdom in that statement. Like we, are, we can be so oppressed by a world in which everything surrounding us is just stuff we've made. But if we get out into the created world, what God has made, there's, that's where healing can start to happen in our hearts. I think we get that more intuitively maybe where we live than other people do. But um, I think we should be grateful that we live where we do. And we have, we have the world right at our fingertips out here. And just, I'm so grateful for it. Um, another thing to think through here, um, real quick application. God calls on his image bearers to subdue the world and have dominion over the earth. That's part of what it means to be his image bearers is that we, we have a responsibility to be in charge of this thing. Like we're set apart differently from the rest of the world. But here's something I think we miss. This doesn't mean we pillage the world that we live in. We don't need to just rip it of all of its resources. There are resources here that we need to use. Yes, but we need to steward this. We need to be responsible for it. We need to care about this world. 
because God has called us. It's called a creation mandate. He gives us a mandate to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to care for the world in which we live. He puts Adam in the garden in chapter 2, and Adam cares for it and keeps it. That was his job, to take this garden that God planted. God started the Garden of Eden, but it was Adam's job to carry it on and and keep taking care of it. But ultimately, the creation mandate points us to the fact that we have a redeemer, not just a creation, but a redemption that we get to point other people to. And that's what the Great Commission draws us out to do, is to tell people that this world is not ultimately what our home is, but Jesus is our home. And he's given us this to live on for now. And one day he'll remake this all and be, we'll talk about that in a future week too. But he's going to recreate the world to be very good again. But in the meantime, we get to help people see their redeemer and meet him personally. So those are just a few thoughts, a few application points. Um, Next week, I like ended exactly when I was meaning to. That is like professional. Um, But... Next week, we're going to deal with uh, the doctrine of sin and covenants. So we're going to kind of take two two topics together, um, mainly focus on sin, but I want to talk about uh, the covenants in the scriptures as well. So that's where we're going. But in the meantime, let me pray for us, and then you'll be dismissed. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us the night to be together. Thank you for the uh, just a beautiful reminder of your goodness and grace to us, your, your glory and your wisdom. And we pray that we would uh, believe your word as, as we live in a world that really doubts and questions your goodness and your creative power and your, even your existence. I pray that our hearts would be steadfast uh, in knowing the word and knowing and believing what you have to say. We pray that you'd take us from here and keep us safe as we go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.